You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. Welcome to Understanding Disordered Eating, episode four. Today, we are in for a treat because we're talking to Melanie Rogers. If you don't already know who she is, Melanie is a certified eating disorder registered dietitian and supervisor and is accredited by the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals as a clinical supervisor in the treatment of eating disorders, which is no small feat. She is the founder and CEO of Balance Eating Disorder Treatment Center and Melanie Rogers Nutrition LLC located in New York City. Among her many affiliations, Melanie is the co-founder and past president of the New York City chapter of the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals, or we just say IADEP. She's an advisory board member at the Center for the Study of Anorexia and Bulimia, or CSAB in New York City and the co-chair of the Nutrition Special Interest Group with the Academy of Eating Disorders. She is an active member of several dietetic associations, including the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics and the Greater New York Dietetic Association. Melanie is the author of an online ebook now in print entitled Redefining Wellness, The Ultimate Diet-Free Guide. She is a professor in the Department of Nutrition and Food Studies at NYU or New York University. If this isn't already obvious, Melanie has earned a strong reputation among her colleagues as an expert in the field of eating disorders and has been invited to present nationally and internationally on the latest scientific discoveries and treatment approaches within the eating disorder profession. So, like I said, a real treat for us. We get to sit down with Melanie and settle in with her in our earbuds and hear some of her wisdom. Let's get started. I think that it's really important to have these conversations because we have them all the time, but people outside of the eating disorder recovery or intuitive eating space don't necessarily have them all the time. The conversations they have are mainly about weight loss and specifically how weight loss is connected to health. And, you know, we practice in a way that that's not entirely true, but I think that we should probably debunk some of the things that are going on. People in mainstream, either media or even science, are talking about things, and um, I just think that it's it's really important to to address. I guess to kind of like narrow it down to a specific situation, I think that it might be useful to talk about um, somebody who is, and maybe I'll ask you to define what some of these categories mean. Somebody who is put in the morbidly obese, and I'm doing air quotes, category on the BMI chart, I think it's important for us to talk about why even using some of these terms has become taboo in our world. But maybe before we address that, can you just talk to what is the BMI chart? What does being in the morbidly obese category, what what do the terms mean? What are they meant to mean originally? Absolutely. Um, So the BMI chart, first and foremost, a little bit of history because it's important to understand where these tools even came from. So the BMI chart was developed over 100 years ago and it was a little archaic. Archaic. And (laughs) it was based upon a small group of, guess what, white people, predominantly male, and it was developed for research and population studies only. 
it was never, ever intended to be applied to individuals. Fast forward to where we are now, and BMI is the thing that your doctor's going to give you, and now they're using BMI for kids, and this this tool was never developed to be used on children. It was originally developed to be used on, as I said, white Caucasian males 100 years ago. So if we think about that, we know that first and foremost, this is not a terrific tool. Uh, So the question then becomes, well, why the heck are we using it? Uh, I would say simply because, A, a lot of people maybe don't know the history of it, and, B, we don't have anything else. That's not really an excuse. All I want to highlight by giving that history is that it has some benefits, but we shouldn't throw all of of our merit, like we shouldn't credit it with the, like, being this magical number that tells us everything about a person's health. First and foremost, it's not it's not an accurate tool. And I'll give you an example. Many of you may know a guy called Arnold Schwarzenegger. And if you took Arnold Schwarzenegger as BMI back in the day when he was Mr. Universe, he would have been classified as morbidly obese because BMI is an equation derived from for your height, what is your weight? And then we have ranges of for your height, this is an acceptable weight, and then we get into a so-called unacceptable weight range. And so, but what it doesn't, differentiate is that weight what is that weight if you like it just tells us the absolute volume of a person and it doesn't tell us well how much of that body weight is muscle in the case of Arnold Schwarzenegger I would suggest it's 95% muscle very little fat and the rest is bone you know bone mass so as you can see it's also not very good it's not very descriptive at telling us what is the body composition of this person? And as we know, why is that a problem? Because we know from a health perspective that pure weight doesn't really tell us much about someone's health. It may suggest, but it doesn't tell us definitively. And this is where the problem is, Raquel, in the health industry um, and how we've adopted BMI and weight as as we've conflated it to somehow be the number one indicator of health, when in fact it doesn't really tell us much. It's only one data point and not a very good one, honestly. Because again, if you have a body composition from genetics and such where you're mostly muscular, okay, let's use the current Olympics. We've got Simone Biles out there. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable goat, right? Greatest of all time. And, and I was looking at her body shape and size and thinking about, you know, some of these body image things that uh, conversations that we have in our field. And I was thinking that if you saw her on the beach and any one of those gymnasts who are on her team, you might say, gee, her thighs are a bit big. She should probably lose some weight. And that feels so sacrilegious to say that, right? Serena Williams is another, what, greatest of all time athlete, one of the best athletes, if not the most um, successful athlete in the world. Again, body composition, completely different, which, which again, I know I'm leading into another question, but what, what we don't allow for with using something as narrow and as potentially misleading or actually misleading as BMI is it does not for one second um, take into account size diversity, racial diversity, ethnic ethnic diversity, uh, let alone fitness diversity as well. Yeah. Um, Just kind of going off of that, is there a way to actually tell with all of those 
I guess, like a different body type and a different race and different background, is there a way to actually determine health? Or are you saying it just has nothing to do or not enough to do with weight? There is no way to determine someone's health based upon their weight alone. There is okay. no way. The only way, that that's like looking at a car from the outside and saying, man, that's a nice looking car. And then you pull up the hood and there is no engine. Yeah. Right. It's, <laughs> what a wonderful I mean, car. I'm serious. What a wonderful car or the engine is broken, right? The only way we can define if someone, what someone's health is, is by running tests, blood, running blood work, for example. Do they have high blood pressure? Do they have maybe high cholesterol? Um, are they experiencing these other kind of real biomarkers, what we call biomarkers of um, health concerns? And yeah. that is encompasses, I think, the problem with our healthcare system and with how society has been uh, told, what society has been told to believe that health is the number one indicator, excuse me, weight is the number one indicator of health. And it is absolutely simply just not true. Yeah. So what would you say? I mean, a lot of science recently or just experts in the field have come out, especially with COVID to say, oh, obesity is a risk factor. And I mean, they talk about that all the time, that it's a risk factor for poor health. What would you say to that, given this conversation? I think what happens is it's an easy, it's an easy soundbite. Obesity mm -hmm. is a risk factor for COVID. But if you actually uh, check out the research then and dig a little deeper, it, honestly, I hate to say it, but I will. It's a little bit of a lazy way to categorize people in a way that is also very discriminating. And some of my clients have been absolutely offended. And in fact, they were so offended by the fact that they were giving COVID vaccines out um, sooner to people who were obese, that they were mortified of going to get it because it meant that they were telling the world, yes, I'm obese, you know, and that's why I got the vaccine. So it's a very lazy way of categorizing people because, again, obesity is based upon what is your BMI, what's your height for weight, and we have no way of knowing if, if people who are in higher weights actually have any kind of health concerns. And, and people will say, well, of course they do, because if you're overweight, then of course you're going to have diabetes, et cetera, et cetera. But if you dig a little deeper into the research, that's what we've been told, right? But what people maybe who um, are not trained around how to read research, which the general population, how would they know? But there's a conflating that happens with the message of correlation. So what we see, correlation uh, for your listeners, Raquel, correlation means that, okay, so for example, correlation is that if my weight goes up and my risk of diabetes or blood pressure may also go up, risk of, that doesn't mean I have it and it doesn't mean I'm going to develop it. And again, these are statistical analysis which speak nothing to the individual and their own genetics and their own family history. So, you know, unfortunately what we've done is we've taken population statistics and then tried to apply them to the individual and it's not applicable. And even in the, there's a, an association, the Obesity the obesity and Bariatric Surgery Association, and even they have identified there's a category of what they call so-called healthy obese people who they, they say are an anomaly because they're, they're obese using the BMI charts, but they have no biomarkers of being unhealthy whatsoever. 
So again, you know, you know, this obesity, uh, you know, people who are obese for COVID, let's dig a little deeper there and look at what else is going on that may make those people more vulnerable for COVID. Are they socioeconomically in a situation where they may be more vulnerable to being exposed because they have to work even during the COVID epidemic, which we saw a lot of people didn't have the luxury of pivoting like we did and working virtually, you know, and and maybe they're working two or three jobs and maybe they don't have access to good health care. So I'm talking about some socioeconomic factors there as well. You know, so, and also there's been some really good research that tells us that above and beyond, if you control for control means if you if you take apart weight per se and look at all the other variables that might make someone at risk for developing any kind of illness um, some really compelling research is coming out right now that uh, weight discrimination and the stress of walking around having people discriminate against you or criticize you or judge you because of your weight, the stress from that day-to-day-to-day discrimination is actually a higher risk than the weight per se might be to health. Now, that's mind-blowing. Yeah, which also would kind of come into when you were saying the correlation as opposed to causation. Correct. That if that would be directly correlated with someone's weight visually, uh, but have absolutely nothing to do with the physical manifestation of their weight. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Correlation versus causation. So causation is if my weight goes up 10 pounds, when I hit this number, I'm going to develop diabetes. I'm going to develop high blood pressure. I'm going to develop these illnesses. That's causation. And that is not what the science tells us. But that's what the public believes, and that's also, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, what our doctors have been told. And that's why when you go in, if you're you're an individual in a higher weight body, let's say going back to that that horrible, horrible category of what we call morbidly obese, which is someone who has a BMI over 40. So so that person goes into the doctor with an earache, and the doctor says, um, and uh, and I think you should lose weight, and you've got an earache. You know what I mean? It's like, doctor, treat my earache, and just could you maybe just not comment on? Yeah, stay in your lane on. a little bit. A little bit stay in your lane, and also the, the you know my body weight uh, and shape has nothing to do with my earache. So could we could we focus on that, please? You know? Yeah. Do you think that there's ever a situation, given what we're saying, that it is maybe more appropriate, I don't know what the word is, to use for someone to lose weight for their health? We get this a lot, Raquel. Um, I'm a registered dietitian. So our training in medical nutrition therapy is all about weight loss is the solution to every ailment, including a earache. I'm I'm (laughs) horrified to tell you that. And we're working really hard to change that. But uh, so this is what we know from the research historically, right? That if people lost five to 10%, five to 10% of their current body weight, so if you're 200 pounds, uh, that would be 10 pounds would be about 5%. If you lost that weight, then some people did see an improvement in blood pressure and diabetes uh, if, in fact, they had those ailments or pre-diabetes. So, so there is some evidence there that suggests that that little tiny bit of weight loss could be helpful. But what we also know is that people don't usually want to just lose 5 or 10%. They want to lose, you know, 
50% of their body weight because even if they lose 5 or 10% of their body weight and they say they are 190 pounds, but the doctor tells them that on the BMI chart they're still obese or morbidly obese. So the doctor is still going to push them to lose more weight. So mm-hmm. I guess what I want to I want to present here two two concepts. One is that in order to improve biomarkers, biomarkers meaning blood pressure and diabetes risk, etc., there is research that shows us a little a little bit of weight loss has been helpful. But here's the trick: to well, number one, as I said, aesthetically, most people are not going to be cool with that. But also, we know that when people lose weight. It's not sustained. And then, then after a year or two, they'll regain the weight and often they'll gain even more weight. So they'll end up at an even higher weight than where they started. So that tells us that recommending weight loss is the absolute opposite of what we want to be doing, even if in the short term that 5 or 10% does garnish some health benefits. And so that, again, Instead of being, I would suggest, maybe a little bit lazy in saying weight loss is the answer to everything, let's think about other ways of addressing this. And Dr. Jen Guardiani has written an amazing book called Sick Enough, um, but she's also been working with uh, clients in higher weight bodies around weight stigma and weight discrimination. And without without changing um, her client's weight at all, but having a health at every size, um, respectful individual approach with those clients, they are seeing without weight loss that their health markers are improving. And so the suggestion is that being in a respectful environment where you don't have that stress of judgment and the constant pressure to lose weight, which many of our clients have tried over and over again, you know, so we're not telling them anything they don't already know, that it's a game changer. It's a, it's a psychological and emotional game changer. It reduces stress. And so there's more and more research now that suggests it's actually the stress factor that could be far more damaging in addition to yo-yo dieting. So the answer then, if I may summarize all that, Raquel, is that we no longer recommend weight loss. We look at stabilizing your relationship with food and um, making sure you're eating adequately throughout the day. And we look at neutralizing your relationship with food and certainly neutralizing your relationship with your body to reduce a lot of that stress and psychological distress. So you're saying that neutralizing your relationship with food and eating a little bit more regularly, incorporating more variety will address the stress, which will then address a lot of the other health issues that somebody might be struggling with. Yep, absolutely. Education, I I think uh, before in doing that, though, when we talk about neutralizing food, I think we have to let people know why why we're recommending that. And we also need to educate people that the messaging out there around weight loss for weight loss sake and for aesthetics is going to lead to a worsening of these actual health symptoms because it's actually what what the research is suggesting us is suggesting is that it's the yo-yo dieting where you lose weight and then you regain plus some you lose weight you mm-hmm. regain plus some it's that constant step up step up step up over time that the research is suggesting now 
is detrimental to one's health and that yeah. and that possibly these health conditions that we are seeing are a result of that enormous stress on the body over time rather than someone's absolute weight straight out of the gate. Yeah. Do you know why that is? Why would somebody, you know, if they had to, if they were losing the weight and they put it back on plus more, um, what is that? Is that a metabolism thing? Do you know Huge. why? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, well, there's a, there's a lot of factors in, involved here, um, but perhaps the core piece that we that we understand is when you lose weight, you don't just lose fat, right, from the body. You also lose muscle mass, right? Mm-hmm. Because when you are eating fewer calories than what your body needs to run on a day to day basis, it then starts um, extracting energy from the body, it starts eating itself, right? And so it uses fat, yes, but actually breaking down muscle is a lot easier for the body to do to access energy. It's easier for that because breaking down fat takes a lot of steps to convert it into energy for the body. So it's a slower process. So no matter what, you're always going to lose muscle mass. Now, what happens then is when you get to your new lower weight, your metabolic rate, how many calories you need to burn each day or how much your body burns each day is lower. Okay, that's fine. But then inevitably, because it's not sustainable, the the fat cells, the fat that we've lost come from fat cells in the body. Those fat cells shrink as you lose the weight. But those fat cells never get go away. What we didn't realize is that fat cells are designed to be kept full. And so when those fat cells shrink because they're now empty, they signal, hey, this is not okay. This is not safe for this body to be empty. Let's refill these fat cells. So then we see a magnificent increase in hunger and seeking out food. And people feel like they're falling off the wagon because suddenly they're overeating and they're going back to old habits. And what happens is they start to regain the weight. But what we see here is that when you regain weight in that in that manner, it's not usually a slow re-weight gain. Sometimes it is, but they're replacing the fat and they're not replacing all of the muscle. So what ends up happening is your body composition changes with dieting. So now we end up back where we were, but the body composition is less muscle and more body fat. As a result of that, your metabolic rate is less than it used to be when you're at the same weight. And so therefore people tend to then end up at a slightly higher weight than they were at the beginning because now their body their metabolic rate has changed less muscle more body fat and so when we talk about correlations we also know that higher body fat over time can also you know make things a little riskier so it's it's an absolute um, recipe for messing up your natural metabolic your natural metabolic rate and your natural body composition over time and Mm -hmm. that actually and that that process of up and down is very stressful on the body Um, so we we think that that's those are those are some of the factors. So that's a little bit of the reason why. So there's an impact on body composition and there's impact on metabolic rate is why you don't go back to where you were, you go up some. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, some of the research, I don't know if any of your listeners, Raquel, have ever seen that horrific show called The Biggest Loser. Yeah. 
horrible show, horrible, horrible show. You wouldn't treat animals the way they treat those those poor people. But um, what they saw in the research, they've done some research on some of those competitors five and six years after the show. Now, remember, those competitors were exercising like five or six hours a day and doing all sorts of crazy things. But what they saw is that five or six years later, their metabolic rates had not corrected themselves. And that was new information that we never knew before. We always thought that over time the metabolic rate would repair itself. But we see clearly from that extreme example that um, five and six years later it never repaired. So there are some, it would suggest, possibly irreversible or at the very least very long-term detrimental effects are associated with with weight loss and we're doing it all the time in our culture. Wow. You mentioned something about the having extra fat cells or higher percent percentage of fat in the body might be also correlated with some health issues. What do, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so what what we what we're looking at right now so this is where it gets tricky with aesthetics and actual health problems, right, or concerns or higher risk. So there's two types of fat. There's the the fat that we have just under the skin that gives us lovely ladies cellulite, and we hate it. Mm. But guess what, ladies um, and guys, um, that that is that is normal fat that we need to produce hormones and produce all sorts of different things. We need that. Uh, we need that fat. Um, and it's based upon your genetics and your gender, you know, what percentage of that is. For, for the gals, it's around 30%, whether you like it or not, because that is um, to defend a pregnancy should you ever choose to have one, again, like it or not. For the guys, it can be around 15% or so. These are, these are, these are uh, population averages, so forgive me if, you know, whatever, they're just generalizations. However, what we know from that is that um, when we start to gain weight above and beyond, um, we tend to store more fat in um, around our organs. And there seems to be some correlation that um, with with body fat around our organs, it can start to um, create some distress. And so it's not exactly how much fat you have on your body, it's where is the fat. So this is where aesthetics have got nothing to do with it because if you see someone at the beach and they've got, like most women, a lot of cellulite, especially over a certain age, you might look at them and go, ooh, you could lose it. You know, sorry, that's that's what society would say, not me. Yeah. Um, ooh, you could lose a few pounds, right? And and that's got nothing to do with their health. It's really what might be going on with them. With um, so this is called subcutaneous fat, which is just under the skin. But we're talking about visceral fat, which is around the organs, and there is some correlation that that is what we need to be a little bit more um, careful about. So if someone has that, again, we know that we can't put them on a diet, right, because dieting doesn't work and it's going to lead to a greater accumulation of body fat over time. We've just we've seen that and we've got, we've got more than enough evidence to point to that. So what we want to look at then is health at every size, which is no matter what our body shape and size and weight, we can be healthier from that from that point. So that might be, do, are you moving your body and could there be some more movement? Exercise, and when I say exercise, I mean joyful movement. I mean going for a gentle walk or maybe you like dancing or maybe you like riding your bike or maybe you like to swim. 
doing a little bit more of those activities has been shown to improve insulin resistance and a lot of these and blood pressure and heart rate, cardiovascular capacity. Um, so that would be huge. Improving sleep, believe it or not. What I'm sorry, I realize I've jumped ahead, but what I'm starting to talk about is when we talk about health, we know now that there are at least five, six pillars of health that all together collectively are influential on your overall health profile, not just weight. Weight is only one of them. And as we now know, a very poor indicator. It's really about do you eat consistently? Are you overeating? Are you undereating? Can we balance that out? Sleep, huge factor on overall health. We've known that for a long, long time, but if you're not sleeping well, usually your food patterns are not good and usually your activity is not good. So we've got sleep. We've got over here not smoking. That's a no-brainer in current society. Um, moderate drinking. Um, and then, as I said, the joyful, joyful movement and stress reduction such as meditation and yoga and healthy relationships, etc. So as you can see, you know, there's all these components that go towards someone being healthier or the healthiest they can be. And weight is not even really necessarily the factor. It's certainly like right now we just take weight as the number one indicator of someone's health and it's so inaccurate. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about, um, I think you had mentioned this a little bit earlier about bariatric surgery. I know that we've had conversations about this in the past. Um, it's been so popular in the world. And I guess, um, you know, just questions about even eligibility that is, is there even a situation in which someone would be quote eligible for it? Could it ever be helpful? You know, I'm. Uh, I tend to be pretty, pretty moderate in the sense of, for each individual person. You know, obviously, it's a personal decision as to what tools they may feel are necessary. So, look, you know, I, I know colleagues who had binge eating disorder, which is, you know, often where someone's restricting and then overeating compulsively, feeling out of control, and there's um, weight weight gain over time that's then led to health concerns for them because they had a family history of diabetes. So what that particular person did is they treated the binge eating disorder um, but then felt that bariatric surgery would be helpful as a, an additional tool and they went ahead and did that. And so I'm, I'm, I, used to, I used to do assessments for bariatric surgery when I first started out as a nutritionist and I, I went In your past life. Yeah, my past life. Yeah, and I worked with a couple of um, couple of well-known surgeons here in New York. And what I found, though, is that the vast majority of the clients coming in for the surgery, first and foremost, had underlying trauma. Secondly, had been on every single diet you could ever imagine. Um, and third, did not have a neutral relationship with food or intuitive eating. You know, most of them had at the very least disordered eating, and many had eating blatant blatant eating disorders when i flagged that to the surgeons the surgeons said so the surgery will fix it and now we know from the research on bariatric surgery that no the surgery doesn't fix it um, that in fact um, many of these clients who go through bariatric surgery end up after that first you know honeymoon period of the first six months or 12 months or 18 months regaining the weight um, and now i think the research suggests that 
um, we're looking at maybe 20% of total body weight loss, you know, three, four, five years after surgery is what you could expect, 20%. That's not very promising. Well, no, especially when initially, you know, people lose 100 pounds so very easily, easily meaning that you're basically starving the body. But again, it speaks to the fact that um, I would suggest we've been a bit arrogant in assuming that if you just make the stomach smaller and people can't consume all those calories, then they're going to lose weight and keep it off forever. So it's a very, very one-dimensional take on human behavior and especially the complexities of our relationship with food and our bodies and society and self-esteem and 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 trauma underlying trauma um people use food to um to negate feelings you know we know that um so bariatric surgery again if someone goes into it uh with a lot of uh understanding of the pros and cons um it is a personal decision I, however, with what I know now, would prefer that the vast majority of people who go for bariatric surgery actually get disordered eating or eating disorder treatment over a year or two, and I would love to see those outcomes. But someone's got to finance that. And no one's going to pay yep. for that, right? And then the other, so so we may say, well, don't do it, but then are we giving people something else that they could do instead, right? So we have to be careful there. And then the other point is, of course, I've worked with clients who were bedridden, who were, you know, 800 pounds and bedridden. And so for those individuals, the bariatric surgery, you know, honestly was a lifesaver um, to help them get, gain some mobility and gain some control over their life. Um, so, so as with anything i like to to not be so black and white right we have to take the individual and what's going on for them but it is a risky procedure and what i used to say 20 years ago when i started working in the field raquel was like we used to with lobotomies right it's really really slightly barbaric and and in fairness though we don't have the sophistication of you know, possibly pharmaceutical intervention or good, good psychological understanding around why people overuse food in the first place that may have led to their weight being where it is. And certainly we've had no appreciation for trauma and comorbidities such as anxiety and depression and how that can affect people's relationship with food. Um, So there's a, a long way for us to go as far as getting more knowledge out there and education to the general public that, people's relationship with food or people's weight it's not a moral judgment you know but we we do see it that way in society right like it's a really complicated uh relationship and um and it's really deserving of a a lot more research and be a lot more compassion yeah um I, i wanted to talk to a point that you were you were saying before about neutralizing the relationship with food which is very much revolving around intuitive eating and this is a whole movement and I think people have a very limited understanding of what intuitive eating is. They say, oh, you eat when you're hungry, you stop eating when you're full or don't eat when you're not hungry or you can eat whatever you want. And then they come at it and say, so I want to eat Doritos all day, every day for breakfast, lunch and, lunch and dinner. So so I guess, can you speak to that just for a second about you yeah. know, some of those misconceptions? Absolutely. Absolutely. And like anything, it's, um, you know, you've, you've uh, summarized the framework of intuitive eating, but like anything, there are nuances, right? So, so so yeah, the, the client who says, well, I'm going to eat Doritos breakfast, lunch and dinner every day, every day. Um, yeah. And you may feel like you want to do that. And Doritos, by the way, happens to be one of my favorite snacks. <laughs> 
<laughs> but and and I also know that that if I did do that, I'd feel pretty crappy by the end of the day because I'm actually. Yeah fueling myself I'm actually not listening to what my body needs and so that that's where that's where it balances out is that if you're actually practicing intuitive eating which is which is very simply just getting back in touch with the internal regulatory system that we're born with like there's no magic here it's just that we get so skewed with not listening to our hunger or overeating beyond fullness that it's really getting back to that internal regulatory system and also really being mindful about when you're eating and really thinking about preferences and what foods do you like and how do they feel when you eat them so here's an example my daughter loves pancakes with lots of syrup on it for breakfast. We had them yesterday for breakfast. And I have learned over the years that when I have pancakes with syrup, it's all very nice in the moment. But about an hour later, I feel really crappy because I get a, a blood sugar drop and I just feel crappy. Um, so I, I don't eat them, even though I like them. So again, but yesterday, so what I did, because my daughter was so excited that we we're going to have pancakes together and I wanted to have that experience with her so I had my pancakes with my syrup but I also made sure I had some yoga and some fruit on the side to just blunten the the you know the the um the carbohydrate load and then I was just mindful that a year, an hour later I might need to grab something to snack on to keep my blood sugars um so that's that's an example I'm not using myself as I don't mean to suggest that I've you know got this incredible intuitive eating, but all of us have the ability to do that, right? If you're mindful of how do you feel after you've had 10 cups of coffee versus how do you feel after two cups of coffee, you're tuning in with how does your body feel and that's around mindfulness and therefore preference. And so now I know if I have 10 cups of coffee, A, I'm not going to sleep, I'm going to feel so jittery. So therefore, I only have my two cups or whatever I have, and I have them in the morning. So, so that's the nuance that I think um, at the onset you may not realize is really a big part of it. And if you tuned into your body, going back to your Doritos, you're going to realize that you just feel like crap, as good as those Doritos are. And what's interesting, you know, is I found that let's say you go traveling and you don't have access to, you know, you're eating different foods or whatever. And then you come home after traveling somewhere and you're craving certain foods. Like I've been traveling, I've come home and I'm like, I just want a bowl of vegetables, which I, I don't usually sit down and eat a whole bowl of vegetables, but probably because I wasn't getting my usual balanced, you know, uh, meals when I was on the road, um, as, as an example. So, so that's really what intuitive eating is, is coming back and being biologically and, and, and emotionally tuned into what your body's telling you it needs. And when you do that, you know, you, you will find that um, your body to some extent will, will tell you kind of what it wants. Here's another example to illustrate that. In the summer, right, it's hot out, you tend to move more towards lighter foods and usually higher water content foods. You may not even realise it, but it's because, like, why do we go for watermelon? Well, watermelon's available in the summer, but also it's juicy and it's refreshing, right? And that's another example of how if you listen to your body, it's about replenishing your body with what it wants, and it wants higher water content in the summer because we're losing that water through sweat. I think it's, a, I mean, I, I geek out on this stuff because, you know, I'm a scientist and I love the biology and the physiology. But if you listen to your body and get in tune with this stuff, it can really do a lot to helping you feel more balanced 
and most importantly, feel more in control with your relationship with food as opposed to the food, feeling like the food controls you. Yeah. And I think to your point, you have to be really honest with yourself about what feels good in your body because it's so easy, especially some of our clients who are struggling with eating disorders for them to say, no, no, I actually feel much better when I eat boiled chicken and plain carrots and that's it. Whereas, you know, it, it might be true that you feel better when you eat one thing over the other, but be really honest where that's coming from. Is that a physiological response or is that a fear underneath what's, you know, what's dictating your preferences. Yeah. It's a mor- that's a, that one for me is a moral judgment. Um, yeah. you know, and I think what's really hard Raquel, and we should say this at the onset is that for a lot of our clients and, and population, right. I have had my own lived experience with an eating disorder, so I can speak to this. I couldn't eat intuitively because I was so detached from my body. And so yeah. for a lot of people listening to this, they may say, well, I don't, I don't know when I'm hungry. I don't know when I'm full. I don't know what my preferences are. And that's really, that's very true because we get so disconnected. And so that's where working with an intuitive eating nutritionist um, who could coach you through getting back in touch with this sort of thing can be really, really helpful. You don't have to do it on your own. It's like if you want to run a marathon, you just don't go out and start training. You usually do a little research and find out what are the steps, maybe get a coach. Same with this sort of thing. Yeah. I love that. Um, I think, you know, the main takeaway here is that it's all about nuance and we can't have any sort of generalization for anything because everyone is an individual and everyone has their own preferences. Everyone has their own body type. Um, and it's all in the detail and what's specific for you as an individual. So So true. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time. This was really fun. I always love talking to you, um, you but I too. really appreciate you sharing your wisdom with my listeners. Um, just before we wrap up, Melanie, where can people find you? Absolutely. They can find me at our website, which is balancedtx.com. That's balance with a D tx.com check us out there um and of course you can give us a call um at 212-645-6903 and for for people who are wondering gosh maybe i could do with a little bit of help just know we have free um 15 minute discovery calls where um, my admissions team can can have a chat to you and and talk a little bit about what might be challenging for you and if we can be of help we would absolutely love to assist in any way Yeah. Um, And just one more thing before we wrap up, I know that uh, Balance has expanded a little bit, have new exciting things going on. So just kind of sharing if people knew who Balance was maybe a year ago, what's new with your treatment center? Absolutely. So we are, as you know, in the heart of Manhattan, we're an outpatient eating disorder treatment center and we treat disordered eating and intuitive eating. We help people get back to intuitive eating as well. Um, But what's new and great is we just received our New York State Office of Mental Health, uh, Mental Health Clinic license. That is a mouthful. What that means um, though, is that we're able to help our clients uh, navigate and negotiate with their insurance companies to get greater reimbursement with their out-of-network benefits. So that's a game changer for our clients because it means that 
that that financial barrier to care is um, is a lot less with being able to access more out-of-network benefits. And we can do those checks for our clients as well, Raquel, and help them with that. So um, give us a call and we can always just run those checks for you so you can get a sense of, of what that might look like financially. Awesome. Um, it's a well. really, really great resource. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. If you enjoyed today's episode and you know someone who may as well, please share it. Not only does it help us reach more people, it really makes my day to know that this show is making a difference. All right, talk next time.